Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 29th, 2022, and this is show number 890. Well, June 6th is the WWDC keynote, and as always, Steve and I will be in the live PodFeet chat room to exclaim with delight and or disappointment at what Apple announces. If you'd like to join us and all of the other NoSillaCast ways who join in the fun, head over to podfeet.com slash chat at 10 a.m. Pacific time on Monday, June 6th. Now, I put a link in the show notes using Bart's awesome web app. He calls it This Time. It's spelled this-ti.me. Get it? This Time? Very cute. Anyway, the tool uh, allows you to generate a link you can use to see what time it will be wherever you are on June 6th. So if you click the link in the show notes, you will know what time to be there. Now, as a reminder, Steve and I will not be talking over the keynote. We will be busily typing away like everyone else so you won't miss a thing. Now, there's something I'm not excited about. It's that I did something really bad to my right knee on Monday. I was about a mile and a half in when something popped and my knee started yelling, started yelling, no, 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 no. I limped about a mile and a half back. I went to the doctors and they don't think anything's torn, so that's good. I've been icing and compressing and elevating and Advilling like crazy and I think it's somewhat better, but I still can't walk even a block without pain. Now, I have a couple of observations about this. First of all, the Apple Watch lasts a very long time if you don't exercise. I went to bed with 51% left the other day. I normally work out at least an hour and a half a day, and I go to bed with maybe 20% if I'm lucky on the Series 7. Secondly, activity is very concerned about me. It's been sending me notifications, and then today it made me go look at health because all of my numbers were way down. At noon today, while I was talking to Bart, I noticed I'd burned a grand total of 141 calories by noon. I almost always overachieved my goal of 680 for the day, so 141 by noon, that's not good. Now, the other thing I noticed is there's a lot of time left in the day when you don't work out for an hour and a half. Today, I sat and I, I watched a TV show in the middle of the day. It's crazy. Anyway, it's uh, it's not a good uh, it's, it's not a good situation, but I will certainly heal. Uh, people have asked what happened, and I said I think I have a bad case of old. On Friday, I had the great fun of being on the Daily Tech News Show with Tom and Sarah and Roger. We talked about how Microsoft revealed it's refocusing away from development of its current iteration of a game streaming device for TVs with a new approach. And we talked about what we think about Telegram setting up a paid version of its current service, amongst other things. We also talked about a study I did this week on choosing a VPN. Now, you're going to get the long-playing version of that study on VPNs in this very episode of the NoSillaCast. Now, if you'd like to catch this episode of the Daily Tech News Show, look for DTNS number 4285 in your podcatcher of choice, or follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond is a light version, but it is with Bart Bouchatz. In this episode, he talks to us about how he thinks about security. Now, rather than try to tell us with exacting precision what to do about a current thing, instead, this is where he talks about how to be proactive, how to convince others to accept changes in the name of security, and how to increase your security by reducing your attack surface. It sounds like a grim and boring subject, but of course, with Bart as our steward for the subject, it's filled with anecdotes and examples from real life, so it's really, really interesting and actually kind of fun. In addition to the podcast recording, Bart gave us a full blog post on the subject as well, so you have reference material to go back to and talk to your friends and family and coworkers about security. 
Last October, alert no Silicastway John Schaffer let me know that the VPN I'd been recommending for many years, Encrypt.me, had been sold to Ziff Davis. He wanted to know what this meant for the product. I reached out to the folks at Ziff Davis, and I had a nice conversation with them about their plans to incorporate Encrypt.me's features into one of the many other VPNs they had purchased. Now, in my article about the conversation, my bottom line was that I was cautiously optimistic and that you could keep using Encrypt.me for the foreseeable future. I also said that since it was pretty much end of life, I'd be looking around for alternatives. Dan Morin put it really well uh, when he said um, about end of life to apps during a recent episode of Clockwise, he said, I like to quit software applications before they quit me. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I also heard from a few no-silla castaways that they tried to get support for Encrypt.me and they got nowhere. It's clearly time to find a new VPN after all. Now, before I describe my hunt for a new VPN, let's make sure we're on the same page about what problems a VPN solves. This may be a refresher for every single one of you, but I'd hate to leave anyone wondering about this. When you're at home behind your password-protected Wi-Fi or wired Ethernet, you're on a private network. But when you go to a coffee shop or hotel, you're either on a public network or at the very best, a shared network with everyone else in that hotel or coffee shop. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. A VPN allows you, as the user, to send and receive data across public or shared networks as though you were directly connected to a private network. Now, when on a shared network, man-in-the-middle attacks can easily occur where bad actors spoof real websites in hope of giving, getting you to give up your login credentials to your bank or even worse. With a properly configured VPN, you won't be susceptible to those attacks. Now, another main use of a VPN is to tunnel into your employer's network. With a VPN from your house to your employer, you can function exactly as though you are at the office with access to internal servers and services. Now, many security-minded Nocilla castaways also choose to always run a VPN, even if they're at home just surfing the net. This isn't as much about security as it is about privacy. Our internet service providers, ISPs, see all of the destinations of our network activity. But with a VPN running, they will only see that you tunneled out to your VPN provider's server, but after that, they cannot see where you went. There are also those who use a VPN to obfuscate their IP address. It could be for nefarious purposes, but it could also be to protect one's identity, say if you're under a political regime that is problematic. It can also be used to view content that is restricted in your geographical location. Now, personally, I haven't ever done that to bypass paying for something. I'm looking at you, Star Trek in Canada on Netflix. But I did once use it to tunnel into Britain because the idiots running the Olympics in the U.S. did not air the U.S. women's gymnastics competition. Come on, people. Anyway, that is the one time I moved my location for that reason. Hopefully, now we've got a foundation that helps you get your brain around why you might want to use a VPN. It was time to start evaluating, evaluating VPN offerings that were in active development. This is much harder than you would think. You pretty much have two choices. Buy one of the ones advertised by your favorite tech podcasters, or choose one from the many top 10 best VPN provider lists. The first option isn't a terrible way to go, because if you hear about a VPN from a tech podcaster, I think it's reasonable to assume they've used it themselves and done some sort of evaluation. But do you really know anything about those VPN providers? Do you know that the podcaster evaluated them thoroughly from a security perspective, or are they just the ones that offered advertising money? The second option is possibly even worse. Unfortunately, many if not all of these top 10 lists are either paid for by the VPN vendors themselves 
or their affiliate links. Now, you know, I love me a good affiliate link, but I am pretty good at making sure you know when there's something in it for me. These top 10 lists often do not disclose the fact that they're getting paid for what you choose. You really have no way of knowing whether these lists are of good VPNs or only the ones that were willing to pay the site owner to be on the list. I started looking at a few of the podcaster-recommended VPNs, and in general, they were quite a bit more expensive than what I've been paying for for Encrypt.me. It's pretty obvious that I would need to start paying more, and I was willing to do that, but I still wanted to find a way to choose a VPN that truly provided security and privacy. I was paralyzed about how to proceed. Then a couple of months ago, listener Lynn attended a consumer report session about VPNs. Turns out Consumer Reports conducted an exhaustive study on current VPN providers, and they published an open white paper on their findings. You can actually view it at digital-lab.blah, blah, blah. It's a long URL. And of course, there's a link in the show notes to this long article. It's a 48-page study, and so I mean it when I say it's an exhaustive study. They started by analyzing 200 VPN providers. They then culled that list down to 51. Then, through their evaluation, they narrowed it down to 16, onto which they did a deep dive. And I mean a really, really deep dive. The white paper takes you through, in detail, the security criteria they used to evaluate each of them and how they were quantifiably measured. They evaluated the 16 VPNs on six security criteria. Build quality, best practices authentication, encryption, known exploit resistance, security oversight, security over time, and vulnerability disclosure program. They also reviewed them against six data privacy criteria, access and control, data control, data use and sharing, data retention and deletion, overreach, collecting too much data, governance, so privacy policies in terms of service, and then governance, privacy policies in terms of service update notifications. As if that wasn't extensive enough, they also have a list of other issues they looked into on each one of those 16. Local logging, dark patterns, human rights and corporate social responsibility, logging, inaccurate presentation of products and technology, ownership, transparency reports, complaints, VPN-owned VPN review sites, response to breaches, and VPN analyzer issues. Or what is it? It's VPNalyzer issues. Not quite sure what that last one is. Anyway, this is a fantastic, fascinating report filled with bar graphs showing how each of the 16 VPNs fared on each of these criteria. But there's still a lot of detail I'll admit I didn't read. It seemed like a terrific study, but to be sure about that, I posted about it in our Security Bit Slack channel, podfeed.com slash Slack, and asked Bart if he'd take a look. His initial response was, first impressions are excellent. These people are on my wavelength, excluding VPNs for hyperbolic ad copy, promising, quote, 100% security or, quote, military-grade encryption. That's perfect that they excluded them for that. Military-grade encryption is a particular red flag. It sounds good, but the military is not about cybersecurity. So it's like saying cheese-grade acceleration. It's nonsense. I think we should try to find ways to work cheese-grade acceleration into some of our podcasts. Anyway, he came back a day or so later. My curiosity got the best of me. I looked through all the graphs and explanations to figure out why ExpressVPN did not make the top of the list. While they were actually number one in many categories, these are the ones they got dinged for. The graphs are color-coded with descending green all the way down to red. If all apps did well in a category, the range might be only green to pale green. But if someone did badly, you'll see all the way to red. 
So he talked about ExpressVPN was pale green, almost yellow on best build practices, bottom of pale green on authentication, orange on security overtime, middle orange on data control, super red on data retention and deletion, and takes three separate button pushes to cancel. So I like Bart's response for several reasons, primarily because he's a good litmus test on whether someone's blowing smoke about security. But he also took a look at a VPN provider that he liked and found out where they fell down. Since I wrote about this in our Slack, a few people told me how they chose their VPN providers, and they were encouraging me me to look at those VPNs, but they chose their VPN providers on a way that wasn't based on this level of fact-checking for security and privacy. I'm not really interested in somebody saying, hey, I like this one. That's not what I'm looking for. Now, if you're content with your current VPN provider, you might want to cover your ears and say, la, 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 or you might want to take a look at this report like Bart did and see how they did and reevaluate your decision if necessary. While all of this detail and nifty graphs were really interesting, I was really hoping Consumer Reports had a bottom line answer for us. I was not disappointed. The last paragraph of the 48 pages is entitled Recommendations for Users. Here's what they said. Of the 16 VPNs we analyzed, Molvad, PIA, iVPN, and Mozilla VPN, which runs on Mulvad servers, in that order were among the highest ranked in both privacy and security. However, PIA never had a public third-party security audit. Additionally, in our opinion, only iVPN, Mozilla VPN, and Mulvad, along with one other VPN, TunnelBear, accurately represents their services and technology without any broad, sweeping, or potentially misleading statements. All right. Now that Consumer Reports had done all of the heavy lifting to narrow down the playing field, my plan was to pay for and install the four finalists and evaluate them against my own criteria. PIA was ranked second of the four, but with that caveat that they've never had a a public third-party audit. Knowing that these companies had done well in such rigorous evaluation of their security and privacy practices, I knew I didn't have to worry my pretty little head about that part of the decision process. All four are open source, which is cool, because it means security researchers can poke their curious little noses into the code to see how it works. When embarking on a project like this, I think it's important to lay down the criteria you want to judge the, the options against before you start testing. It's very easy to change the criteria to match the one you like instead of evaluating every option on its own merits. I like to use a process called a QFD, That stands for Quality Functional Deployment, which is a terrible name. Don't even know what that means, but I know what QFD is. Now, I made a video back in 2015 that I've linked to in the show notes that demonstrates how you can use a QFD to make decisions. For the serious QFD experts amongst you, this is going to annoy the heck out of you. But I like my heavily simplified version of the concept. At its very basic level, you create a list of criteria first. You give each criterion a weighting value based on its importance to you. You are only allowed to assign a weighting value of 1, 3, or 9. You're not allowed to use 1, 2, 3. You can't use 1 to 10. It has to be 1, 3, 9. The purpose of this odd numbering system will become obvious in a moment. Once you have the criteria and their associated weighting values before looking at any of the options, you start to evaluate these different options. In this case, my four VPN apps. You would then assign a 1, 3, or 9 to how well that option meets each criteria. When you're done evaluating an option against all of the criteria, you multiply how well an option has met a criterion against its weighting factor and then add them all up for that option. 
By using this 139 method for both the weighting and how well an option met the criteria, the final tallies for each option should spread farther apart than they would if you used linear values, making the one true answer more obvious to you. Now, describing the QFD process is much clumsier than if you just see it with the math, and trust me, it works really well. Be careful to not get overzealous when you do this and say, everything is a nine in importance, or you won't get any differentiation at all. Sometimes you must, but try to avoid it if possible. Also remember that while I'm using this rigorous math to help my decision process, the values I'm assigning will be in many cases subjective. Sometimes a feature exists or doesn't exist, but often it's much squishier than this. The importance value is also subjective, but this decision tool can help reveal an answer you might not have expected. Since I don't have to worry about evaluating any, evaluating any of the four VPN offerings for security and privacy, I'm free to make up my own criteria. Here's what I chose. Now, remember, this isn't what you choose. This is what I chose. You need to make up your own criteria. But So here's what I chose. Available on all platforms, macOS, iOS, iPadOS, Linux, Windows, and Android. Secondly, turns itself on when on an untrusted network. This is so I can set it and forget it. So if I walk into a coffee shop, it turns itself on, but it turns itself off when I come back home. The third one was easy to figure out how to trust networks. Encrypt.me had this feature, but it was baffling each time I had to find the setting. Family sharing was something I wanted. I was hoping to cover Steve and me at a minimum, but keep covering my kids if it was affordable. It was affordable with Encrypt.me. Separately, price, with or without family sharing, price does matter, speed when connected to the VPN, available on enough devices at a reasonable price. Some of these had uh, plans for just two devices. <laughs> Isn't that precious? Anyway, my next criteria was pretty. It's, hey, it's my list. I can ask for pretty if I want to. You don't have to put pretty on your list, but I put pretty on my list. My final thing was a measure of fiddliness. The last thing I want in a VPN is fiddly or I will just turn it off and not use it. So it's only going to work for me if it's not fiddly. Now again, one more time, you may have completely different criteria, but these are what's important to me. I set weighting values of 1, 3, or 9 for each of these criterion and I got to work. Here's my testing process. I paid for one month's usage of each of the four VPNs, Mulvad, iVPN, Mozilla VPN, and PIA. I installed them on my Mac and on at least one iOS device. Probably the most important lesson I learned while doing this was that on iOS, only install one at a time. Well, sure, that sounds obvious now. You're going, duh, Allison. But I still had Encrypt.me's profile on my iPhone, plus I added two or three more before I realized it was the root of the fiddliness I was starting to experience on some of these VPNs. So I had to back out and only have one running at a time. It does install these, these profiles, so you have to make sure you don't have any extra ones in there. All right, we'll get to my quantified analysis in the QFD at the end, but I'd like to first describe my experience with each one. I started with the VPN called Mulvad. Mulvad doesn't require you to create an account. They simply give you an, a unique account number. They don't even get your email address. You can pay with a credit card, but you can also pay with cash. You can actually mail them an envelope of cash, or you can use cryptocurrency. In fact, if you pay with crypto, it's actually 10% cheaper than any of the other methods. I thought that was interesting. For some reason, Mulved's credit card payment page would not work with Safari, but I've been having a lot of trouble with Safari lately, so I fell back to using Microsoft Edge. Their pricing is $5, I'm sorry, not $5, $5.50 Euro per month, no matter how many licenses you want or however long you want them. 
They are very proud of this static pricing system that has been in place for many years without an increase. 550 euro is currently $5.37 US per month, which works out to $64 per person or $129 per year for our family of two. I downloaded and installed Mulvad and I was delighted by the icon for it. It's a mole wearing a hard hat with a light on it. Get it? Tunneling? <laughs> I thought it was funny. Anyway, Mulvad also includes ad blocking, malware blocking, and more all within the VPN app. This was the first app I tested, and I noticed that I could choose either WireGuard or OpenVPN to make my VPN connection. As I worked through the four different VPNs, I realized that with the exception of Mozilla VPN, they all offered both. Mozilla VPN offered just WireGuard. I didn't know why I'd care about it, so I asked Bart. He said, WireGuard is newer, more efficient, and better designed. It's the cream of the current crop. It's so good, Linus incorporated it straight into the Linux kernel. Well, luckily, all four of the contenders have an option for WireGuard, so if it's good enough for Linus Torvalds, the inventor of Linux, it's good enough for me. The one reason I can imagine you might want to use OpenVPN is that you can put it on many home routers and NASes, so maybe a client that supports OpenVPN would be an advantage. If so, eliminate Mozilla VPN from your list. Back to Mulvad, you explicitly tell it where you would like to connect. For example, I'm in California, and I can choose Los Angeles. From there, I can choose from 20 or more different servers in Los Angeles. However, I'm not shown any information on whether any of those are a good choice. With some of the other offerings, it turned out servers in Las Vegas often had less latency than the ones in California. I'll give Mulvad high marks for lots of servers, but low marks for information about those servers. The interface is very bold and striking. Mulvad is a menu bar app like some of the others, and it has a bright red unlocked icon that turns bright green and locked when you're connected. If those bold colors bother you, you can make it muted and le less recognizable by going into settings. Mulvad has a dark map showing your location with a bright red banner and a bold green secure my connection button. Now, if you prefer a subtle modern UI, you'll hate Mulvad. If you long for the days when you could tell your application windows apart and your menu bar items apart, you'll bask in the glory that is Mulvad's UI. I would have trouble calling it pretty, but you could call it bold, like I said. As the pod mom used to say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. As I mentioned earlier, one of my criteria was that my VPN should automatically protect my connection when I'm on an untrusted network, but not engage when I'm on a trusted network. I couldn't find any settings for that with Mulvad, so I reached out to them. Eric from the Mulvad team got back to me very quickly and explained, quote, We do not have such a feature as we don't believe it's good practice for security. It's easy to spoof an SSID to trick your devices into being in safe mode. Well, I decided to run this by BART because my initial thought was that, you know, there's no way that a bad actor in a coffee shop would know the name of my home Wi-Fi SSID. So the chances of them being able to spoof it is significantly lower than the chances that I'll forget to turn on my VPN if it's not automatic. Bart's answer was really interesting. He said I was correct, that they would not be able to figure out my home SSID, so I was very proud of myself. But the answer could be very different for other people than me. He said that large companies and even small companies can have the same SSID for the entire company. I had no idea. He suggested someone could go into the lobby, say, at Intel, see the SSID being offered, and then just trot over to a nearby coffee shop and set up that SSID to be spoofed. 
If you trust your work network and don't VP- and uh, don't have it go into the VPN, then your VPN might turn not turn on when you're in a coffee shop. He also said that universities throughout the Western world have one single SSID. It's EduRome. The idea is that if you're doing research at a university, you should be able to just hop on the network no matter what university you're visiting. I had no idea SSIDs were so broad. When I retired from a defense contractor, Wi-Fi was not a thing and may not even be a thing yet for that kind of company. I don't know. I'm still going to keep this as one of my criteria because the danger probably doesn't apply to me and because the chances of me forgetting are so much higher. I encourage you to think about whether you want to use this kind of feature based on Bart's explanation. Moved and many, if not all of the other three I tested, have a feature where you can enable local area network sharing. This is pretty nifty because it lets you have access to things like printers and other network devices. When I mentioned it to Bart, he pointed out that turning it on is essentially the same as saying you trust everyone on this network. I hadn't thought about that either. I asked him, what's the point of this feature then? He reminded me that some users choose a VPN for privacy so their ISP can't see where their traffic is growing, and some users want to appear from a different IP address, thus changing their apparent location. In both of these cases, you might still want to maintain your local area network access because you're not on an open network, you're at home. But if you're going to use a VPN to protect yourself from ne'er-do-wells on open Wi-Fi networks when traveling, you'd be best to keep that LAN access switched off. The next one I tested was iVPN. Not only does iVPN work on Windows, Mac OS, Linux, iOS, and Android, they also have versions for compatible routers along with Synology and QNAP network-attached storage devices using OpenVPN. They have two pricing plans. Standard is for two devices, again, isn't that precious, and Pro is for seven devices. Now, I guess I'm a pro because I travel with at least a Mac, an iPad, and an iPhone. If you pay annually, the two-device plan is $60 per year, and the pro plan is $100 per year. Now, Steve only travels with two because he hates the iPad, so for the two of us, it'd be $160 per year. That makes iVPN the most expensive of the four offerings, at least for our little family of two. Like Mulvad, iVPN is an Electron app. iVPN is beautiful. It's smooth, it's responsive, and the menus are very clear and very obvious to follow. iVPN does allow you to trust networks and will automatically toggle on and off as appropriate. I have a guest network on my Eero router, so I was able to easily test switching between my trusted main network and the untrusted guest network. Sadly, iVPN on the Mac got fiddly on me. I tried to toggle it on, and the toggle would flip on and immediately flip off. At the same time I was testing it on the Mac, I was testing it on my iPhone, and the phone worked without any trouble. I wrote to iVPN, and Edward got back to me very quickly. His response was quite lengthy. Networks are different. If you cannot connect or experience connectivity issues while being connected, this may indicate a network issue. The issue may also occur if the network service provider, ISP, is shaping or throttling the VPN traffic on a certain protocol or port. One way to get past such restrictions might be to tune the connection. Fortunately, our app makes this tuning very easy, and he gave me a link to how to do that. Now, I'm going to interrupt here for a second. He's not noticing that I said the phone was fine, so I don't think my ISP is is shaping it, and there's no connectivity issues with my network. But he kept going. OpenVPN and WireGuard both offer a selection of ports. Might be prudent to test all of these ports to determine the one which works best on your current network and allow the connection through. 
You might also consider trying a different server location or two. Network routing can be weird, and using a server location that is far or farther away might bypass whatever is restricting the traffic. Well, while this was very helpful and very specific, it still doesn't explain why the iPhone was working and the Mac was not. He suggested that maybe the iOS app was running a different protocol or port that was allowing the connection. The second problem with this answer is that I don't want to have to know all of this. I don't want to know about protocols and ports. I am capable of understanding this, but I don't want to. I want to walk into Starbucks and I want my VPN to go on. I want to walk into my house or tether from my phone and have it go off. I was sad about iVPN being fiddly because it really is beautiful, and it has the trusted networks option, and I love that it has a simple, fastest server option, so I don't even have to figure out whether Las Vegas is faster than Los Angeles. It did all that work for me. It's very expensive if you need more than two devices, and I've verified that their terms do not allow multiple users to share a 10-device plan. This was a perfect example of that I was really glad I made my criteria up front because I really probably would have picked iVPN because it was so beautiful. But I had Fiddly on there, and I tell you what, Fiddly was a nine. So if it was uh, if it was Fiddly, it was not going to get chosen. Next up was Mozilla VPN. Mozilla is a name that's near and dear to all of our hearts as the creators of Firefox. So I was glad to see Mozilla VPN in the top four contender list. Mozilla's pricing is simple and in the mid-range of the ones I tested at $5 a month if paid yearly, which works out to $60 per year, for a very reasonable five devices per person. For the two of us, we'd be looking at $120 per year. Mozilla VPN has probably the simplest interface. It's also a menu bar app and it has a simple toggle to turn on the VPN. It shows you how many devices out of the five you've connected to the service, and you can even trash them right from the interface to free, up, to free up some slots if you need to. To choose a server, you can search by country, and then you'll be shown a list of servers in that country. The tool doesn't provide you any information on the latency of the server you've chosen, but in my speed test of the Los Angeles server it provided me was right in the pack with my other VPN providers. Mozilla VPN is a built-in speed test tool. I didn't find that in any of the other VPN tools I studied. I wish they all had this feature. There are very few options with Mozilla VPN, and I couldn't find a way to trust networks. I reached out to Mozilla, and like the others, I got a very quick response to my query about the feature. Ed explained that they don't have that feature, but suggested that I share that request with the development team. Now, that's a great answer for an open source project. He thanked me and explained how to add this to their tracking system for requests. Well, that was swell. I don't really want to wait around for a feature request. I needed a solution right away. There's one more interesting thing about Mozilla VPN. As I said from the Consumer Reports article, it runs on Mulvad servers. That's not a ding on it, just an interesting thing to note. If you're not happy with Mulvad server selection for your area, then Mozilla VPN probably would not provide you with better service. The final contestant in the top four is PIA, or Private Internet Access. This offering, like all of the other VPN providers, works on all of the major operating systems, but they had one more I th hadn't thought of that might meet your needs. PIA has a Chrome OS client. PIA offers different commitment lengths that can help decrease the cost. They have options for month-to-month, -month, six months, two years, and three years, which is cor with correspondingly decreasing pricing. Month-to-month -month is around $12 a month, going all the way down to barely over $2 a month for a three-year commitment. 
I do need to give one caveat on the pricing. As of the time of this writing, May 2022, PIA is working on some problems with her promotional page pricing. Steve discovered this when we both went to privateinternetaccess.com and he was offered a two-year plan and a six-month plan while I was offered a one-year and a three-year plan. We also saw very slight differences in the prices we were offered. They were off by a nickel. I don't know why. Anyway, I reached out to PIA and they explained they were aware of the problem and they were actually working to fix it. In any case, the one-year price of $3.33 per month for 10 devices is only $40 per year. For Steve and me, that would be $80 per year total. If we want to go even cheaper, we can use that three-year plan for only $2.19 a month or $26 per year per person. Even at the one-year commitment level, that makes PIA significantly lower than the next lowest VPN in cost. It's also half the price of iVPN, the most expensive of the four. When I saw the price of PIA, I was really hoping I'd like it. I kept using my QFD, though, to make sure I was consistent with what I said was important, and the price was only rated with a 3, not a 9. When I created my account with PIA, they sent me a username and password in plain text through email. That seemed pretty odd. The password they created was only 12 characters long with no special characters. Now, I'm not sure how critical it is to have a secure username and password, since we know from consumer reports they don't do any logging of information, but I immediately changed the passwords to something much more secure using Bart's xkpasswd.net. I discovered that they offered two-factor authentication, which I also enabled while I was there. PIA has a very pretty interface. As a menu bar app, it's very smooth and clean looking. There's a giant power button on the screen with a colorful ring around it designating your connection status on the VPN. Below that is a flattened earth map with a green dot to show you your chosen server's location. By default, it set itself to auto, which was perfect, finding that Las Vegas was the fastest server near me. A chevron to the right reveals the servers it has listed in ascending milliseconds of latency. Interestingly, Panama was the same latency, 60 milliseconds, as Las Vegas. Ironically, the fastest California had to offer was 91 milliseconds, and Honolulu, Hawaii was faster at 77 milliseconds. In later tests on my iPhone, Melbourne, Australia was responding faster than Los Angeles. I think this is an important lesson, that it's not necessarily the closest server that's the best server, so a VPN that chooses for you might be the best way to go. One of my favorite features of PIA is that it shows you your real IP address and the IP you have through the VPN. A colored ring telling me I'm connected is swell, but seeing that VPN IP saves me a trip to ipchicken.com to verify my VPN IP as I had been doing when I was using the other VPN apps. Next is a set of country flags for Quick Connect so I can tap on Panama to connect directly if I want. Below that is a chevron to reveal more real-time information than any of the other VPNs. You get a graph of performance. You can see how much usage you've had both down and upload. PIA has a plethora of easy-to-understand settings in its main settings window, but you can also access six of the most common settings in the menu bar app as little buttons you can toggle for quick changes. For example, you can toggle desktop notifications. You can toggle light versus dark theme. You can allow LAN access. Remember, that's dangerous, but if you need it, it's a quick toggle away. And there's even more under those quick connect buttons. You can even see when your subscription renews, which I think is pretty darn polite of them. You can also see a lot about your connection and the protocols it's using. Finally, you have a little VPN snooze button. 
Now, you know you just sometimes need to get off the VPN for just a minute or two to do something locally, so that's a real handy feature. There's a five-minute timer you can change to set how long you want to snooze so you don't forget to turn it back on. Each of these sets of info I've described has a little grab handle on the right, which means you can rearrange them to put them above the fold and even all the way at the top. Its fabulous and intuitive interface has tons of information if you want it and very minimalistic if you don't. After all that, I haven't even told you about the actual settings. There are nine separate settings panes. Luckily for you, I've gone pretty long in this article, so I'm not going to explain them all. I will tell you that they have a section entitled Automation, and that's where you can set up trusted networks. They have two stock automations, what to do on protected Wi-Fi and open Wi-Fi networks. If you would prefer being disconnected on protected Wi-Fi and connected on open Wi-Fi, you can do just that with automations. I chose to always turn the VPN on for both of those scenarios, and I added an automation rule to trust my home network. I didn't even have to type it in, as it was the network to which I was currently attached. The only thing that would have made me like PIA better would be if those automations synced across to my iOS devices like they did with Encrypt.me. Now, I'm betting the carefulness they have with our data, like not logging information, keeps them from being able to do just that. It's really easy to make these automations, so it's not a big deal. Speaking of automations, PIA also offered to set up a Siri shortcut to connect and disconnect from the VPN. That was really nifty. Once I was in love with PIA, I got serious about testing it on my Mac and iPhone and iPad. I wanted to make sure that it was actually reliable about connecting and disconnecting correctly on the two Wi-Fi networks I used for my test. I promised I wasn't going to tell you about every feature, but there's one more I want to at least draw your attention to. PIA has created a technology they call MACE. The purpose of MACE is to stop cross-site script tracking, but they don't do it the way an ad blocker would. I showed it to Bart, and he said it's simple DNS blocking, but it does have some advantages over trying to use an ad blocker. So I put a link in the show notes to the article explaining how clever this is. Now, I didn't test every one of the VPN offerings for accessibility, but I'm delighted to report that I found no features that I couldn't access via voiceover on PIA. Every button was labeled. There wasn't any excessive faffing about to get into each settings from the menu bar app to the dedicated settings panel. I've tested apps where they've got tables and you have to keep going in and out and they tell you things like, hey, here's a vertical bar. That's really helpful. Everything I tested worked really well with PIA on voiceover. Okay, that's the four VPNs. As I went through each of the VPNs, I filled in my little QFD decision tool and there was one more thing to check. How fast are these VPNs? I found a site called fast.com, which will very quickly run a speed test and show you your download speed. It doesn't have anything else on the page except the speed and a retry button, so it's an easy and quick way to find your speed. I ran three tests of my network without any of the VPNs, and I found my average speed at that moment. I also made a note to call and shake my fist at my ISP frontier because I'm only getting 59 megabits per second when I'm paying for 100 symmetrical. Anyway, I then turned on each of the VPNs one by one and I ran three tests and I averaged those results. Mozilla VPN was the fastest at 52 megabits per second using a Los Angeles server, while the other three were all clustered from 40 to 44 megabits per second. Now, Mozilla VPN is supposed to be using Mulvad servers, remember? But for some reason, Mozilla VPN was actually 25% faster than Mulvad in this rather limited test. Now, I think more data points from more locations would have been more scientific. 
I think the important point is that all of the offerings, while slower than my unVPN connection, are all pretty darn fast. It's time for the bottom line. I'm guessing you can tell which one I'm going to go with, and if you guessed PIA, you would be right. It scored a 379 on my QFD, while Moved and iVPN tied at 301, with Mozilla VPN bringing up the rear at 265. PIA is gorgeous. It's easy and intuitive to use and configure. It's fast. It's accessible. It offers trusted networks, and it's by far the least expensive of all the offerings. I wanted to choose my VPN provider with completely unbiased security and privacy review, and Consumer Reports gave me exactly what I needed to get started. I hope you find a VPN provider you can trust, and if you haven't yet, hopefully this article will have helped you consider how to do your own research into the best one for you, or maybe to just check and see how your VPN provider met their requirements. If you decide to blindly follow me and go with PIA, they gave me a referral link that will add 30 days of credit to your paid account and to mine. I'm not in any way suggesting you should blindly follow me, but if I made a compelling argument for their service, why not share in the savings? You know how much it helps keep the show going that people are willing to support the work we do here at the PodFeed Podcast by using Patreon for ongoing pledges and PayPal for one-off donations. But there's another way you can show your support, and that's through using my referral links. You just heard me mention one. Referral links are a good way for you to get something free, usually, on something you are going to buy anyway, and I get some free stuff too. I've been accumulating more and more referral links over time for services that I actually use myself, and I've done two things with them now. If you go to podfeed.com, there's been a big support the show button for a long time. It takes you to the bottom of the page where I've got big buttons for Patreon and PayPal. But now there's a cute icon showing two people sharing a bag of money. If you click on that icon, it takes you to a dedicated page filled with referral links that I'll keep adding to as time goes on. Now, if that sounds like a lot of work to do to find that list, why don't you just open up the show notes right now in your podcatcher? I've put all of the referral links in there as well. Now, I said you get free stuff for doing this, mostly. Let's give you some examples. Recently, someone used the Parallels Toolbox referral link when they subscribed to it. They got three months on top of their subscription, and so did I. Bob and Chris joined Setapp using my referral link, and they got a free month of the service, and so did I. Whenever somebody buys a Max Sparky field guide with my referral link, they get 15% credit towards their next field guide, and I get the same. I've got referral links for Backblaze backups that give you a free month, Google Fi that gives you $20 credit, and you just heard me say that I've got a PIA referral link. Get this, by the time you're hearing this, three people have already signed up for PIA using the referral link I used in the show notes. I said at the beginning of this that you mostly get free stuff. The one exception in the list is Eufy. I've been buying Eufy cameras to replace my Wise cams after Wise lied to us for three years about a bad security problem. If you spend $200 on cameras from Eufy, I get $40 and you get nothing but a warm feeling in your heart that you helped me out. Now I'm buying the inexpensive indoor cameras for around 30 bucks, so I think you'd have to work pretty hard to spend $200, but I figured I'd throw it in just in case. I know this was a long pledge break, but since there's something in it for you, I thought you'd allow it. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for one of my favorite times of the week. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats, where we'll learn whether we need to light our hair on fire about all kinds of things today. Right, Bart? We will indeed. I'm, I'm a little thin on top, so thankfully nothing to set on fire today. I'll have none left. Um, but no, we're, we're good. 
All right. Let's uh, start off with our feedback and follow-ups then. Indeedy. So first bit of news that crossed my radar. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, AirTags. And I read a story that caught my eye because it's about a device law enforcement already have to track GPS-based trackers. Uh, which is like, oh, hang on a second. So we actually have a solution for this already that works for the GPS-based ones that have existed forever. What, what do you mean uh, by track it, GPS-based ones? As in, it is if a they device track for detecting... You? No, it's... So you suspect you are being tracked. Ah. So this device will seek out the RF emanations of one of these GPS-based trackers... Okay. That existed long before the Find My Network and the tiles and all that kind of stuff. Okay. I wanted to clarify because my first instinct is, so the police are now tracking me with the GPS tracker. <laughs> no. So they have a tracker detector. Okay. Great. Great. Okay. And uh, Now, these are not cheap. Uh, the, the list price is a few thousand dollars. Um, and they're named after what is in the UK and Ireland a chocolate bar. Uh, they're called the Yorkie Pro, uh, and Yorkie is a particularly chunky brand of chocolate that has a... I haven't bought a Yorkie in years, but they used to have a slogan that is definitely not PC anymore, which was, Yorkie is not for girls. <laughs> I thought a Yorkie my was one of the queen's, I thought a Yorkie was one of the Queen's dogs. There is also an abbreviation of Yorkshire Terrier, yeah. Yeah. But she has corgis, though. She doesn't use... Oh, she you're right. My mistake. Yorkies do exist, but they're Yorkshire Terriers. Anyway, the Yorkie Pro is this device made by Varitronic Systems. BVS is what they're called. Or Berkeley Varitronic Systems. Anyway, it exists. Law enforcement have it. And it just got a free firmware update. So it now also detects AirTags. Because that's ORF too, right? It's just different okay. ORF. So just added in the functionality. So it's just I was kind of like, oh, I didn't know that existed. And oh, well, that's a good idea. So... That was good. So if the fact that it's pinging and telling your phone that it's tracking you isn't enough, <laughs> they can help more? Yeah, but it means that law enforcement can do a sweep of things if you hmm. have a reason to be suspicious or whatever, assuming it's a big enough police department to have one of these contraptions. Right, so right. I, I got my first uh, alert on that. I was uh, oh. driving with uh, Nolan in the car and he had his air tag with him that I gave him for Christmas and it told me. It said, you know, this right. AirTag's been traveling with you and told me the name oh, of it. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know. And was the UI useful? You know, I didn't do anything about it. It was just a notification. I didn't think of clicking it. I probably should have. I'd be curious, too, because uh, because Wing and I are in the same family account, our trackers don't do that to each other. Oh, is that why it is? Because I've never gotten one from Steve before. That's why it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because you're not strangers. Apple knows you're not strangers. The other thing I didn't know that the family account is useful for, if you have um, a, um, a HomePod and you shout stop when there's an alarm going, it will also stop anyone within your family group if it's not your device. It will so, stop anyone in my family group from doing what? An alarm. If, if, if there's any device, an mm. iPad or whatever that has a timer beeping or whatever, if you just shout stop, <laughs> hey, S lady, stop, she will find anyone in your family who has a thing making a noise and make it stop. In and your, it does actually In your work. house? Probably. Yeah, on your Wi-Fi. So within, oh, okay, on your Wi-Fi. So now Wing is missing an appointment because you yelled stop at this annoying alarm and it was his? 
Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> potentially, but it, in reality, we're all sitting in the city. You know, we're all watching telly, and something's making noise, and either of us could just shout at the air, and it will stop. <laughs> I like it. I did find one uh, interesting problem or mistake I made with the air tags. Um, I told mine to ignore my house as a place of me leaving things behind. Because right. I don't. Every time I go for a walk, I don't want to be told that I left my suitcase and my brief and my uh, backpack and my shoe bag at home. That's not what I need yeah. to know. Until we went to Lindsay's house and I forgot my purse at home. We're like 20 minutes down the freeway and not turn it around. So I had to spend the weekend like bumming sunglasses off of people. And uh, it wasn't too bad. I didn't have to drive. So that was good. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of those things where 99.9% of the time, the default behavior is what you want. And in this one case, you you want S Lady to magically know. Hypothetically... With a bit of AI, the fact that you have your appointments in your calendar means that the Apple universe could, in theory, have learned that it should have told you to bring your purse. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. I think I'm going to do a post on how many notifications I allow. I know most people are like, turn them all off. It is it is hilarious how many notifications I get during the day of all the different uh, cameras and things I've got going. I think I'm going to list it just for the comedy. Well, I like to do a halfway house where you can have stuff deliver silently. So when you open your lock screen, they're all waiting for you, but they don't ping, they don't light the phone up, they don't hit your watch. They just, they're waiting for you when you choose to check. So there's sort of like a pull instead of a push. Yeah, yeah, no, I want them all making noise. I want them coming up. And oh God, no, I, I think I would actually go genuinely <laughs> mad. Well, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put in my post all the reasons why, but I have now gotten you off the rails on the first bullet of what looked to be yeah. some pretty meaty show notes. Yeah, okay, so let's jump back on the rails. We talked a few times over the past couple of months about the IRS's now somewhat abandoned move to force everyone to use ID.me to prove their identity to file taxes online. And I say abandoned, they've sort of, they, they've added in a few extra options so you don't have to use ID.me. Because they are solving a very real problem. There's an awful lot of fraud going on in online tax filing. So the problem they were trying to solve was legitimate. It's just that forcing everyone to use ID.me was an even worse idea than we thought. Because thanks to some whistleblowers in ID.me, we now know they lied. They were very explicit that they were not using one-to-many facial recognition. They were. Now, we knew that a while ago, right? Uh... I mean, I, after the original announcement, or do we did we just learn that now? I thought we learned. We just learned that now. They they, oh, they were okay. asked the question, uh, and well, actually, I'm not sure exactly when we knew what what I happened. Know some this sort week, of lie came out initially. I don't know if it was this lie. It's possible senators are slow to write letters, but what what happened this week is that Senator Ron Wyden and a couple of other senators have written a formal letter demanding an explanation for why they told us there was no one-to-many when in fact there is one-to-many. And the letter very correctly lays out the gigantic flaws with our current implementations of one-to-many, which is that it's racist and sexist. Like, dramatic. Other than that, it's awesome. Hypothetically, it could be awesome, but right now it isn't. It really isn't. Uh, we also talked last time, we almost had the story right. So last time we said that Apple were about to bring the uncontroversial parts of their child protection features to iMessage in the UK. And that is not wrong. They did bring it to the UK and Canada and New Zealand and Australia. Oh, 
Oh, that's good. So we were a quarter of the way to the story. So I figured we should put it back in and finish it off. And so, Alistair, if, you know, if your kids are of an age where you want to do that kind of thing, which I, I don't, don't think, that's think they are. But anyway, <laughs> I don't think they are. But anyway, you know, our, our friends down under can have some fun with these features. We've also talked a few times about uh, Apple support for driver's licenses and so forth in the wallet app. Uh, that has gone live in Maryland. So that's another place oh. where that's coming online. Oh, that's fantastic. Because... Um Chris Ashley lives in Maryland, and so does Rod Simmons, and the two of them have been talking a lot over the last couple of years about how they can't wait until they can have their idea in their phone and stop carrying a wallet. So they're getting closer, but they're not there. They can carry it in their phone, but they can't yet not have their wallet because the patrol cars and stuff haven't been outfitted with scanners to actually read oh. them. So <laughs> we're on that road. Necessary but not sufficient is what this is called. Right, a very important step towards that wonderful future, but not, we haven't arrived at our destination. Okay. So a few more turns. Uh, and then lots of stuff going on in the world of social media that I just sort of like to highlight, because it, it is a very problematic part of modern life, so I think it's important we keep up with it. Um, so a mix of stories. So first off, two things that sort of put a, like, we're very... I think we're justifiably quite quick in being harsh in these companies, but it is worth remembering that they do have a difficult job they've made for themselves. So to put some context on that, there were two stories that seem very similar. So Twitter said that it suspends over half a million spam accounts every day. That is the rate at which people are trying to abuse that system. Half a million they catch a day. That they catch. Wow. Yeah, because they don't know what they don't know, right? They know they've deleted half a million. They have no idea how many snuck through. Wow. No human being is checking their work because that's impossible. <laughs> yeah, when uh, everybody who's not here raise your hand problem, right? It, precisely. Uh, and we also know that in the last three months, Facebook have removed 1.6 billion, with a B, fake accounts. 1.6 billion. Yeah. That's like, you know, a third of the world's population worth of fake accounts in three months. So there you go. So, you know, they are working hard, even if it is not sufficient. Uh, we'll stay with the naughty news first. Uh, Twitter have agreed to pay $150 million to the United States Federal Trade Commission for misusing email addresses and phone numbers requested for authentication and using them for ad targeting. We knew that Facebook did that. I didn't know we knew uh, Twitter did that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think we knew, but now we have the final fine that they've settled on, mm. or at least we suspect it. Anyway, it's a settlement, so now it's official. They've they've admitted to it, and they're going to pay 150 million, which is a drop in the ocean. But anyway, uh, it better news. Twitter have outlined their new crisis misinformation policy, explaining how they will stop promoting tweets that are potentially troublesome during a crisis. So they're not talking about deleting stuff. They're talking about the algorithm not vamping stuff that's problematic. And they're talking about labeling it as such as possible misinformation. So if there's a crisis going on, then there is a whole class of stuff that is going to get labeled and not vamped. So that's a good thing. Okay. Um, Instagram are testing a new feature that's going to make it harder for people to flood you with their stories. Uh, so in, so basically, you can post three stories and then the rest will be hiding behind the dot dot more. Whereas at the moment, apparently, you can chain up to 100 stories and <laughs> flood people's timelines. So 
that just seems sensible. WhatsApp did that a little while ago, right? I I believe you. Um, I I yeah. I, I remember a, that was I, one of the I'm ones I heard about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Instagram are, um, oh wait, no, TikTok are next on the list there. Uh, TikTok are making it easier for people to give credit to the original creators of videos. So if they're using pieces of other people's work, they have made it easier to credit the original creators, oh, which good. is cool. Because that's one of the things I look for. One of the things you can do is it, you can tap on uh, on one to find the original audio because it'd be like an adult voiceovering a child. And those are often really, really funny. But if you yeah. tap on it, it'll take you to everybody who has ever used that original audio. Oh. And you have to get to the bottom to find the very original, original one. And if it's really popular, you can be scrolling for days. I mean, it's really, really hard well, to get to. That's so it's kind credited, of a TikTok not... thing, right? Is, oh, yeah. is memes of oh, people redoing stuff. Best. So funny. I know you're very fond. <laughs> Uh, and then Twitter have also, actually, Twitter have shown up a lot here. Uh, Twitter are also tweaking their monetization. Um, so they have launched something called Exclusive Spaces for Super Followers. So we already have this concept that you can pay to be a super follower, and then you can get extra stuff from the Twitter person you're super following. Well, one of the extra things you can now get is that the super followee... The person people super follow uh, can host a secret space with their super followers. So okay. if you know if, if you're some sort of semi celebrity or whatever, you can sell your super follows. Then you can have a little private chit chats with your super fans. Hmm. It's, it's an interesting idea. So yeah. again, it's a way to monetize without advertising and tracking and all that. Kind of like stuff, what so. you can do with um, Patreon, right? Where you can have a newsletter yeah. and conversations with people directly. Yeah. Exactly that kind of thing. So it's, you know, one of the things that sort of reminds me of is Alan Alda does, uh, is it Zoom Clear sessions or something with oh, yeah. his top supporters um, who who follow him on Patreon. I've never um, checked to see how much money you have to uh, donate to, to get that. <laughs> to get there. Yeah. Part of me is like, I wonder, could I do it for one month just to get on a call with Alan Alda, which would be fun. Oh, but yeah. And I go, yeah, well, my bank account is finite, and maybe I know that far of the idea. <laughs> but uh, one thing to know Alan Aldas goes to the uh, Alda Foundation for Communicating Science. So it's not like he's lining his pockets with gold. Yeah. He's already got thankfully, gold pockets, probably. <laughs> well, and thankfully, he has, he has done well enough with his great talent in life that he doesn't need the money. He can do it for a foundation because yeah. he deserves it, because he's a darn talented chap. Very good at communicating science, right? Hey, before he really we is. before we move into the deep dive, I texted uh, Chris Ashley about the uh, putting his IDs and wallet in Maryland, and he sent me a screenshot. He said I was the first one to sign up, so he's got it, <laughs> got it in there. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, there is one more thing before we do move oh, on sorry. to the deep dive. Actually, uh, Twitter have rebranded their media thing, which is basically a yoke for creators I don't understand, and they've called the Twitter Create. So it's now a new thing for creators I don't understand. <laughs> But apparently it also applies to podcasters. So I am tempted to try figure it out. I just haven't done that yet. Huh. Might be okay. interesting. Deep dive number the first is the DuckDuckGo browser tracking kerfuffle. So security researchers do sterling work. And they often check people's assumptions or claims to see if they stack up with reality. It's, it's good to check. So one of the researchers was checking just how private DuckDuckGo's new privacy-focused browser is. So that's and separate from noticed, their search engine, right? This is the browser we're talking about. Correct. So they're the, known the for their search engine. Is, 
Yeah, yes. I mean, their search engine is their first product and their browser is a recent product. So that's why their browser is getting attention at the moment because it's new. You know, it's a new shiny. Okay. And so it is like the whole company. It is branded in a, you know, a security conscious way. That's their thing. That's that's what makes DuckDuckGo DuckDuckGo. And the security researcher was checking to see how the site, how the browser behaved on third party tracking from different sites. And it is, generally speaking, very good at what it, it, generally speaking, does what it claims to do. But there's an anachronism. There's an exception. It's a, it's, a, it's a much, much smaller and less consequential exception than it sounds. But nonetheless, it is, it is a, a fact that the Microsoft properties like LinkedIn get treated differently to random websites. Hmm. So the first thing to say, and you've already hinted at the important distinction here, absolutely, positively, nothing I say today in any way affects the DuckDuckGo search engine. It is out of scope in this conversation. They do not treat Microsoft differently to anyone else. This is not about the search engine. What has also been lost in a lot of the coverage here is that this does not in any way affect the DuckDuckGo browser's third-party cookie blocking. So they block Microsoft's cookies like they block everyone else's cookies. Well, so you probably what assume don't they block then. Ah. So in addition to cookie blocking like other browsers can do, DuckDuckGo goes one step further and it blocks the very loading of JavaScript files from known trackers. So it does it doesn't even let the JavaScript run to try and make the cookie it then blocks. It just goes, well, why even load the JavaScript? And that saves a bit of CPU time and makes the web load a bit faster and it's just generally nice. But because of contractual requirements with their Microsoft contract, because Microsoft provide the raw searching that powers DuckDuckGo, they can't block Microsoft scripts from loading. So the script is loaded and then the cookie is blocked. Oh, so it, it doesn't leak data anyway? It doesn't leak the cookie. The cookie. So. Whether you, if you are on Firefox, your browser will go to Microsoft's web server and download the JavaScript. So on Microsoft's web server is a log entry that says that your IP address downloaded this URL at this time. Okay. On DuckDuckGo, for all trackers apart from the Microsoft trackers, that doesn't happen. So you leak less information than you do on every other browser. For the Microsoft sites, you leak exactly what you would leak on every other browser but the cookies are still blocked. So there is a log entry in the LinkedIn log, the web server's log that says your IP address downloaded the JavaScript. It is not tied to your identity. It is not tied to a cookie. It is literally just this IP address downloaded this file at this time. That is the grand totality of the leak. Okay. It's a non-entity. What do you mean non-entity? This is not a news story, technically. Okay. They're failing to do more than everyone else for these websites. But it's still disingenuous to Aha, you've say hit on the you real have, problem here. You have this service and that this is what you're getting and then go, well, except for these people who are paying us something. It's no, it's not even about these people who are paying us something. It's this is a contract we have with someone who's providing us a service and that contract was negotiated while we were only a search engine and it has a side effect now that we're a browser too. 
Well, wait a minute, though. If they're contracted with them, are you saying that Microsoft is not paying DuckDuckGo in that contract? I think it's the other way around. DuckDuckGo is a for-profit company that does not have its own search engine. It contracts search to Microsoft. So they're paying Microsoft for a service. DuckDuckGo are, not the other way around. Right, DuckDuckGo is paying Microsoft for a service, and Microsoft, in return, is saying, and you have to let us do this. Well, it's a little bit more complicated. It's a massive big contract, but one of the things is you can't block content from us. But not cookies, content. So they're not allowed to stop the URL loading, but they are still blocking all of the tracking. Right, but so DuckDuckGo is saying, we are going to provide this extra level of uh, privacy to our customers, except for this one company who is paying us. No, no, but DuckDuckGo pay paying Microsoft. For, we're paying for Oh, yeah, it is that yeah, way. So it okay, is, it is backwards saying. to how you said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I caught up to myself. But, like I say, technically this is a non-issue. But DuckDuckGo is a company whose sole product is privacy. So this right. is a trust issue. Yeah. This is, a, this is a... The failure to disclose up front is the issue here. Because this isn't actually going to give Microsoft anything of actual value. Right, right. But it undermines our trust in DuckDuckGo. Now, just a teeny little wedge, not a, not a we're going to call it a wise level wedge of underpinning. It's not a wise level wedge of we forgot to tell you about something for three years that was a, hu- a significant security risk to you and never fixed it. It's not that right. kind. Because there's a sting in the tail here. All of this just shouldn't have needed to happen, but it's just stupidly written contracts. Basically, there's a privacy clause in the Microsoft contract that covers the privacy clause in the Microsoft contract. So DuckDuckGo weren't allowed to say that DuckDuckGo weren't allowed to say this. <laughs> and the only reason they can talk about it now is because now that it's in the public domain, thanks to the security research, they're not disclosing anything. So they're not breaking the privacy. So they're allowed to, they're allowed to respond now? They're allowed to respond now. And the response is, we've been trying to renegotiate this clause for some time and we are continuing that effort. Okay. So in a way, it makes Microsoft look a little sleazy, but... To be nothing, honest, nothing yes. they can't nothing they can't withstand. Yeah, basically, I think Tom. So Tom Merritt did a very good coverage of this on Tech News Today, Daily Tech News Today. There was a letter missing there, uh, DTNS. And I think the key here is that when the contract was negotiated, these contracts are not like a two pager. These things are epic. Oh yeah, many tomes. many lawyers in the room, <laughs> tomes. And when they when DuckDuckGo negotiated this, they were purely a search engine. And now they're not anymore. And to renegotiate a contract is a big deal because you've had to argue over all the really consequential stuff like the money. And if you rope in the book again, then everything's on the table again. And so it's not just, oh, we'll just change this clause because if DuckDuckGo wants something, then Microsoft's going to want something in return. And you've <laughs> you basically, you've taken the lid off a can of worms is what you've done. Right, right. I see you've put a link to uh, Tom's explanation in DTNS 4283, timestamped to the start of that uh, section. I, I highly recommend listening to that because I listened to it twice from Tom, and I still got it slightly wrong when listening to Bart just now, and Bart's clarification now after three times, I think I understand it. Yeah. And we should say, actually, just because people may not understand Dr. Go's business model, and I'm, I'm the big follow-the-money guy, so... What makes their search engine different is that they sell, they do sell ads, right? They are an ad-based company, 
but they sell ads based on the context of where the ad appears, not on who is looking at the page. Oh, so if I go to B&H, I will see ads for cameras and audio equipment. Exactly. So they are selling the old-fashioned magazine style. Mm. We sell ads based on where, not based on who. But they don't run their own search engine. They contract the searching to Microsoft. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. Anyway, and, so there we go. and back to the very beginning, just to circle back one last time, DuckDuckGo's search engine has nothing to do with any of this. Bingo. It is their Even search though they engine, contract it to Microsoft. They contract it to Microsoft on a where, not who basis. Therefore, the search engine is fine. So they have a search engine. They do not have a search engine. They're using Microsoft search engine, but yes. the way they sell their ads is where, not who, and that's what makes it different. Okay. Oh, that, I Correct. definitely didn't, I didn't catch yeah. that. Okay. So contextual advertising is the buzzword, as opposed to targeted advertising, which is the buzzword for spying on people. Yeah. Okay. Contextual ad, good. Targeted ad, bad. Right. Because, I mean, if you're looking for cameras at B&H, you want to see camera ads. Precisely. And in the case of the search engine, the context is what you're searching for. Well, so you're basically... There's another advantage for the user to that, not just that you're not tracking. The, the problem with the uh, targeted ads on Who is you go look for a camera, you buy a camera at B&H, and then every ad you see for the next three months is going to be for cameras, possibly even the camera you already own. Usually, yeah. It's like, well, you're <laughs> interested in this. I know you are because I've been spying on you. You just missed a bit where I hit check out. And I'm glad Spire they can't me better see or not at all. Well, no, I'm glad they can't see when we check out. <laughs> well, Careful what we? you wish for, Bart. <laughs> yeah, either don't spy on me at all or do it properly, but this is annoying. Um, I, I'm going with don't spy on me, by the way. Have been. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, now we got it. We definitely can light our hair on fire in this next one, right? Right. Because security researchers find a way to run malware on iOS devices even when they're apparently off. Ah! That sounds awful. That's terrible. pretty darn awful. It has a fire extinguisher ad, though, because the TLDR on this is it's a classic case of in a lab, in an utterly unrealistic scenario, a security researcher who can literally poke at a phone for days on end can install custom firmware to do this. Okay. <laughs> so in the real world, not so much. So since iOS 15, iPhones have had abilities that are excruciatingly useful because they're basically both a phone and a, an NFC device. So mm. car key is one of these functions. If your phone couldn't act as a car key just because its battery had run out, then you could end up in an awful situation. Okay. Uh, the fast transit stuff that is used in places like the London Underground and on the MTA in New York... Again, that will work even when your phone is powered down so that you can still get the tube home or the whatever they call the tube in New York. Subway. Um, and then there's also the Find My. So your iPhone also acts like an AirTag. Okay, right, because you can find it. Because you can find it. And the way that works is that a small amount of the battery power is diverted to separate chips that are physically in the phone but are not part of the normal CPU brains of the phone. So is that a piece of the battery that is still char uh, charged or is it like a capacitor or how is it doing that? Do you know? It's basically, even when your battery's dead, it's not dead. Okay. There's a, there's a reserve okay. in the battery. And so when your phone is powered off, it, those chips just stay on. And even when your phone powers down to protect itself, you actually still have the reserve. 
And so that reserve will keep the NFC stuff going because that's really, really light on power. It's NFC and Bluetooth or BTLE, Bluetooth Low Energy. So like the little button cell can keep an AirTag going for over a year. That's how little these things draw, right? Oh, good point. Good point. So those are chips. They have firmware. Those chips are always on. So if you could replace that firmware with your own firmware, you have code that's running always. That is the thing that has been realized here. So security researchers went to poking and a prodding, as they do, (laughs) and they discovered that the level of cryptographic protection of that firmware is less than the secure boot stuff on the iPhone itself. So it is actually easier to put malicious firmware on those chips than on the normal chips in your iPhone. Because the normal stuff has a whole bunch of cryptography every time you boot it. So hypothetically, Apple could strengthen the firmware protections on those other chips and make them better than the firmware in an AirPod or whatever. So this is interesting research. It points Apple towards a good way to harden their stuff in the future. But this isn't actually exploitable in a realistic way. Especially since it has to be jailbroken, right? Right. So either you jailbreak it and then you can do it in software or you bring it into the lab. And I'm pretty sure you have to physically open the phone to get to the (laughs) solder points where you can do the debug stuff that will let you push a firmware straight to it without jailbreaking. But either way, that's not just going to randomly happen. Right, right. So for now, because attacks only get better, for (laughs) now, this is a purely hypothetical, oh, cool, security researchers are doing important work thing. So it's not a scandal. It's not a auga auga. It's, huh, okay, good. I'm glad they're telling Apple about this and expect future firmware to be better. And we all win. Yeah, that does sound good. I I love the fact that security researchers are out there poking and prodding at things because I sleep better at night knowing they're there. Right, because they tell us and they tell Apple, which is even more important. The bad guys are also poking and prodding, but they keep shtum. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'm going to do a quick ad in the middle here for this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond, based on something Bart just said when he kind of grinned at me as he said, attacks only get better. And he said, this isn't a problem for now. Uh, we just did, and, and I will have talked about this at the top of the hour, but I'm sure there's people who jump straight to security bits on the show because it's chapterized, so you can do that. Uh, Bart was on Chit Chat Across the Pond where he talked about the way he thinks about security. And what he was just referring to was one of the segments he did, which was st- using what Bruce Schneier says, which is attacks always get better. So whenever you give security advice, always say, for now, <laughs> this is what you have to worry about because you need to open the door for the possibility that it's going to get worse. And a lot of times it does, because the bad guys don't forget stuff. They only learn new stuff. It's a great, very informative uh, chit-chat across the pond. So, ad break finished. That was fun to record. Yeah, that really was. (laughs) Okay, so jumping us into our normal programming then, we have some action alerts to watch out for. Apple have patched just about everything. Hey, I've managed to lose a link. There was a patch Tuesday, so Microsoft patched just about everything. And there were some important ones in there. I don't know how that fell out of the show notes, but it was Patch Tuesday. Do patch your Microsoft stuff. And Apple patched pretty much everything they make. And the Apple patches are particularly important because they contained zero-day exploits in the kernel, which is the Mm. brains of the brains of the operating system. The kernel is like the absolute heart of the thing. So you definitely want to apply these Apple patches. They are particularly nasty. 
So that and if your iOS ones were 15.5, and by the way, there was a 15.5.1 for Apple TV and HomePods that just came out uh, in the last couple of days. Yes, which is all basic, because they're all basically the same OS. Like, they certainly share a right. kernel. But just those two got the 15.5.1. Everything else got 15.5. Interesting. I wonder what they broke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. 15.5 worked for everything except those two devices. Therefore, here's 15.5.1. And I thought that the HomePods always did it automatically, but it was suggested by a few people on our Slack that, yeah, but it's fiddly. So I went and checked, and of my three HomePods, one had done the update and the other two had not. So I just went in and manually did them. I'm too lazy to do the Apple TVs, though. I'll let Steve do I know those. mine applied an update automatically recently because I have a pair in the kitchen, and forever... Very cleverly, the one nearest to me was always the one in charge. So if I say, hey, yes, lady, start a timer, it's always that one that does it. Now they're swapped. <laughs> okay. So the one way over in the other corner of the room, vaguely I can hear in the background going, I've started the timer for you. Like, well, okay, fair enough. You know. And when the timer goes off, they all make noise. But it's like, what? what? I'm never over there. Why did you decide you should become the boss? Maybe you should look for that 15.5.1. Maybe they'll switch back. <laughs> but if they flick back automatically, I'll know. I was like, oh, that's done it. Um, but yeah, anyway. So Apple have patched almost everything. And also Windows people, uh, if you still use iTunes on Windows, you got yourself a security update too. No new features, just a security update. But you should do that. Okay. Um, and then this is a good news story now. Um, Firefox patches itself, right? That that you don't really have to proactively monitor it. So I don't really talk about every update to Firefox that comes out. But I want to talk about this one because it shows the difference between a, a company that's working well from a security point of view and a company that isn't. So all software has bugs because all software is written by human beings. So you're not trying to measure software based on whether or not you see security vulnerabilities in the news. What you're interested in is how they're dealt with. So Pwn to Own happened, and on Wednesday, it was the Attack Firefox Day at Pwn to Own, and someone won a fair bit of uh, pony points by successfully attacking Firefox. So part of the Pwn to Own competition is you have to do responsible disclosure. So on Wednesday, Firefox were told about some nasty bugs in their browser. The public weren't told how they worked. We just saw that they worked in the competition. On Friday, they were fixed. Nice. Wednesday competition, Friday patch. That's how it should be. So well done to Mozilla on that one. Excellent. Uh, if you are a medium-sized company big enough to run your own virtualization stuff on-prem so that you have your own VMs sitting in your own offices, and if you're one of the many, many, many people on planet Earth who use VMware for that, patchy, patchy, patch, patch, ASAP. Ooh. There are two really nasty bugs in the VMware management software, which basically allows unprivileged people to take over all of your VMs, <laughs> which is ransomware people's absolute dream mm. because they can break out of a VM to get root access on the host OS and then break into every VM to get root access on all of your oh, VMs. Yikes, 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 yikes. So that's so not a good So this doesn't have anything circle. to do with VMware Fusion, the, the home desktop uh, software. And I guess it, the vulnerabilities may exist in there, but they're irrelevant in there because you're already on the computer. You'd have to have malware on a VM in your computer to get malware onto the VMs in your computer. I see what you're saying. Circular logic there. It, it's kind of, I mean, 
it won't do any harm to apply any updates they offer. But this is a really big deal if you're running if you're ha- if you have something like a website that's world facing that is on a virtual machine, that's an attack surface. Whereas if you're just poking about with some stuff on your own machine, that there's not really a surface there to attack. But again, patchy, patchy, patch, patch, of course. Uh, but this one's bad enough that the US government actually released a notice saying if you are running VMware and you are on a government network, it has to be patched or disconnected from the network. Yeah, yeah, yikes. So it's serious stuff. Uh, moving on to worthy warnings. If you are an employee of Verizon, you should be aware that Verizon has suffered a data breach. Their employee database was stolen. Uh, they were charged a ransom. They told the ransom people to sod off. Therefore, the data was leaked. It contains your email address, your other contact details, and your staff number. So hypothetically, you are now in danger of a spear phishing attack. So just mm. be a little bit careful. It didn't contain your bank account details or any of that kind of stuff. But this ex- this makes it easier to scam you. To, it makes it easier to ma- send you a convincing email to trick you into clicking something you shouldn't. Forever. Yeah. So forever, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. As long as you care about Verizon. I guess after you haven't worked there for a couple of years, you're not going to fall for a Verizon branded trick because it's right. not your HR department anymore. But, you know, it's, yeah. That's what I hate about these. They features. just, it's like, now it's there. Yep. Yep. As as you know <laughs> from firsthand experience. Thank you, OPM. Yeah. Uh, notable news then, the other privacy-focused browser, so DuckDuckGo's browser is a privacy-focused browser, the other big player in that space is Brave. Uh, and their browser for iOS and iPadOS has been updated with a shiny new feature called the Privacy Hub that visualizes the way different websites try to track you. Oh, that sounds fun. I've been hearing good things about Fun Brave. or depressing. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, fun in a, in a be really sad kind of a way. <laughs> kind of, yeah. But yeah, so it, it's an interesting browser. Um, it's nice to see people competing on privacy as a feature. Now, so you told place. us uh, yesterday in Chit Chat across, across the Pond on how you think about security that if you test a lot of software, make sure you delete the ones you don't use. Does that apply to browsers? Because I collect them oh, yeah. like, like uh, Tamagotchi, you know, I just collect them all. <laughs> Uh, yeah, given that browsers are one of your most exposed attack surfaces, it probably double, triple applies to those. Oh, I want to have really? lots of them. Well, if you use the ball, it's fine. They'll okay, keep updating themselves. Using... Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. So I keep updating them. Yeah, okay. then they're okay. Um, the DOJ in the United States have announced that they will not be using the very problematic Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the CFAA, against good faith security researchers. You can't call this a bad news story. This is a good news story. Yeah. But it's a lot less of a story than you think. Because last year, the US Supreme Court had something to say about the CFAA, and they basically said it was being used much too broadly and to stop it. So what this is actually is some spin going, oh, okay, I guess we'll do what we have to. Only they've spun it as a big announcement going, we're great, we're going to stop, we're going to start being all nice about this. It's like, no, you were told. Well, and of course, the so underlying we still get to problem, celebrate it, don't we? We do, no, no, that's what I'm saying. This is not a bad news story. You can't okay. say it is bad news that this bill is not going to be abused as much anymore. That, that, that is just, that is good. But 
the law is still terribly written. It is still stupendously vague and broad. And the DOJ could abuse it again in the future. So this is good, but you shouldn't take the pressure off your Congress critter to repeal and replace this thing with a proper law. It's just such a bad piece of legislation. Yeah. Now, computer acts be alive written in the 90s. If it weren't for this, right? I'm afraid to say Aaron Schwartz would probably still be with us if it wasn't for this right. abuse of the CFAA. Yeah. And that's a tragedy in all sorts of ways, obviously. Um, so I, I'm pretty passionate about this because if you listen to what security researchers have suffered in the US, a phrase that always marches into every conversation about a persecuted uh, security researcher is the CFAA. That mm. thing is just bad. And anything that dissuades security research is bad for the planet, not just Americans. Yeah. Yeah, it's just bad. So it makes me cranky. So I'm on a, I'm on a bit of a soapbox on this one. But look, it's great that it, the DOJ are going to stop abusing it as much, but it still exists, so it needs to go away too. Okay, I got off my soapbox. Uh, <laughs> popping across to the other island on the other side of me, I, I always think of that Bob Dylan song, "Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right." But anyway, um, so the the jokers or the clowns, I'm not sure which in the U in the UK. Um, it's kind of a good news story, too. So the Information Commissioner's Office have announced their final judgment against Clearview AI. And they have basically given Clearview AI a cease and desist and said, you're not going to track UK citizens anymore and you have to delete your data on UK citizens and you're going to pay a fine. Now, we knew they were going to pay a fine and we knew they were going to have to stop. But in the press release from a few months ago, when none of this was finalised yet, they had promised at least £17 million was what they had promised us in the press release. The final settlement is £7.5 million. That is less. Yeah. That is a lot less. So I don't know why they why did they bother saying through. that number if they weren't going to do it. Yeah, so it's good that it happened. But why do you sh wait anyway? Why why shrink it? So, the, I, but anyway, I'm glad you brought this one up just because my understanding was what Clearview AI did was they went out and took publicly available images of people, like public profiles on fo on Facebook, and made them part of their database and analyzed them for the purpose of biometrics. Yes, and where That's is that illegal? That but where is that illegal? In the UK. You can't just go around scanning people's biometrics without their permission. You can have a camera, and that's fine, but you can't use that camera to take people's pictures to make a facial map to recognize them okay. with okay. biometrics. Because I knew that, I mean, they legally got the, the, the faces. Mm, no, they didn't even do that, because they were put on a website with... They weren't just published freely, they were published with terms and conditions, which oh, they broke okay. completely. Oh, okay, okay. So okay, there's okay. plenty of grey here. Okay. Plenty of grey here. okay. Um, but in the UK, you have protections against biometric analysis. So that the act of having data and doing things to it are not the same thing. So you can have data legally and then do something illegal with it. You can have a chainsaw and cut wood. You can have a chainsaw and cut your neighbors. One good, one not so good. Anyway, there's yeah, quite a lot more gray there than you would initially imagine. Yeah, okay. Uh, 
But I want to end on a happy story, which you pointed me to. You were first to point me to it. Many people pointed me to it, but you were first, so you get the credit. Um, the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, are one of those amazing groups that do sterling work protecting all of our digital rights. And one of their campaigns for a very long time has been to push HTTPS. That is why they made a plugin for browsers called HTTPS Everywhere that would default... Basically, you install the plugin and it would default the browser to trying HTTPS first. So if you put in podfeed.com as a bare URL, a decade ago, all of the browsers would have tried HTTP colon slash slash podfeed first, unless you explicitly typed the HTTPS yourself, which you wouldn't do because you're just, I've got to go to podfeed.com. You're not going to put in the www, let alone the HTTPS. So the plugin was there to do it for you. but. And the other thing that EFF were really involved in to help with HTTPS, by the way, is they're one of the big backers of Let's Encrypt. So that's your free SSL certs all over the place as well. So that's another thing they do. But the reason they have announced that they are retiring the plugin is because all of the browsers now have a feature to default to HTTPS. In other words, job done. Plugin obsoleted for all the right reasons. So Isn't I was just going to say it is great news and it is my annual donation doing good for the world and i encourage others to join me in donating annually to the eff if you give enough you get a shirt you do or at the very least because i don't have a shirt but i do have lots and lots of stickers i have so many stickers that i now have spare stickers because all of my laptops have a sticker on them and i don't really want to plaster them full of too many stickers <laughs> but uh, yeah actually the car could do with one <laughs> anyway yeah i have lots of stickers every year i get a fresh pack of stickers um, but they're fun. Okay, uh, jumping us on then to interesting insights, just the one thing here. Um, so until the Digital Markets Act goes into effect, we have the status quo in Europe where the companies are regulated where they have their headquarters. So the little Ire- island of Ireland is stupendously important in matters of privacy because Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and a bunch of other people have their European headquarters in Dublin. So that is why the Irish Council for Civil Liberties have done a massive analysis of how the ad auction service that powers Google and a few others work. Now, they didn't include Facebook or Amazon in their analysis, and I don't know why, which means that you can't use this report to judge who's worst. You can only use this report to say that Google is bad. So they describe how the real-time bidding system that they use to sell you Google Ads, how that works and quite how much of your privacy is broadcast across the world millions of times a second. And they make the argument that this is basically the worst privacy breach that exists in the world today. It's just being done for profit, so we don't call it a breach. Just because it's a billion... uh Billions or is it million t- billions of times per day just because of the rate it's a massive breach? And the what? So every time you visit a web page on the who... So Google sells ads based on who you are. Right. But those ads are auctioned in real time. So in the split second it takes you to load a page, there's an auction held to sell the ad before the page loads. So the moment you hit the page that has a Google ad in it, that's when the auction starts. And within a few milliseconds, the auction is completed and someone has bought the right to advertise at you. 
Wow. And that auction broadcasts to the people bidding for it, which are ad, you know the people selling ads, your age, location, gender, all of your private data that is basically the profile Google have built on you is broadcast to everyone who's bidding for your eyeball. And then the winner gets to show an ad. Huh. Okay. But those profiles that they build that are so scary, they're just shared with all of the ad companies all the time to have these auctions. That's how they sell ads based on who you are. Right, right. And see, so seeing it see destroyed about DuckDuckGo. <laughs> see, exactly. See, story about DuckDuckGo. So if you want to understand quite how invasive that process is, then this paper from the Irish Civil Liberties Council sorry, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, the ICCL, will lay it out for you in great detail, and then you'll be all sad, which is why it's under interesting insights and not, you know, anywhere happy. Um, it's interesting, it's just not good news. But let's cleanse our palate. Um, you recommended this to me, our Slack recommended this, and I already had it in my pocket <laughs> for recommending this. So everyone agrees that this is a palate cleanser and a half. And in fact, you can read... You can look at pictures or you can watch a video. So you've even got a palate cleanser with choices. But there is an amazing site that I have enjoyed a few times called Scan of the Month, where they take a CT scanner and they point it at not your arm or your leg, but they point it at a thing. And they take a three-dimensional scan through stuff and then they figure out how it works. I thought it was an X-ray, not a CT scanner. Uh, A CT is a stack of X-rays. Okay. So really? if you imagine know that. a slice, an x-ray slice, another x-ray slice, another x-ray slice, huh. and then you interpolate a 3D model, that's what a CT scan is. I did not know that. By the way, David Roth is who tipped me off to it, and then I posted it in Slack, so I, I can't take credit for finding this one, but keep going on what it is. Yeah. So they took the original iPod, the last iteration of the original design of iPod, and the iPod Nano, it was a Nano, wasn't it? Nano. The third one yeah. they took, the, right, the, right. the first successful SSD-based one. And they showed them through the CT scanner. And you can see the inner workings of the very first iteration of Apple's great idea. And then the ultimate refinement of that amazing idea. And then the replacement of that amazing idea with the solid state. And to help you understand how amazing all of this was, they have a special guest. Tony Fidel, the inventor of the iPod, he talks was, you through it in video. He was just fabulous. And he, I, what I loved is for him, it was like a walk down memory lane to go, oh, Ooh. look, look, this is where we had to put bumpers on that little little uh, support structures for the, for the hard drive. Because if they dropped it, you know, this was the first time anybody would be carrying a hard drive in their pocket. Oh, and look at, look at, look at how much air there is. And it's just like his joy and excitement and remembering like spot welds was, was hilarious. Yeah. My, my favorite part was when he got to the uh, iPod Nano and he talked about they kept getting when they first started delivering them they were getting uh, intermittent connectivity in in the device they were failing intermittently and it was because people were slipping them into their back pockets i'm looking at you men because we don't have pockets and uh, and they were flexing and 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 pulling apart in the connection and so they ended up gluing it after that and that apparently fixed the problem yeah they also made a machine to test it called the butt test <laughs> well, that, he said Which that, that was, was a cool touch, and that was when they first got X-ray scanners at Apple to be able to try to. They bought them to try to figure out what was wrong with this particular device. 
Yeah. It's so, great uh, fun. Uh, I didn't I think mean, I would watch 20 minutes of somebody looking at x-rays of a piece of hardware, but it was delightful. It really was. And the, the, the level of excitement and... The, Clearly, Tony Fidel was having fun remembering all this. Yeah. Now, he's recently written a book about all this stuff. So it was like a double memory lane. And I mm-hmm. got to plug his book as well, which is nice. Um, but yeah, so that was really, really fun. So and then the other one the I just... Scanofthemonth.com. So the other one then that I, that I really enjoyed, uh, which was already on my list to have as a palate cleanser before we record, before I even thought of the topic we recorded yesterday... But I have mentioned Bruce Schneier quite a few times because Schneier on Security is a very long-running security blog. And Bruce Schneier is a good communicator and a clear thinker. So he very often has a lot of very worthwhile things to say. Uh, And he was the guest on a podcast I quite enjoy that's really by software developers for software developers called The Changelog. And... It's just a really fun conversation. It's like an hour and a half or something. It's not short, but it's just a really fun chat with nerds among each other. And what really caught my eye is one of the first things they sort of ping off as a throwaway question is, so what do you think about crypto, Bruce? Well, my goodness me, does he have opinions? And they're very well thought out, but expressed very freely. And basically, Bruce thinks it doesn't doesn't add any value to anything, and it doesn't actually do what it promises. So he thinks it's terrible. And it's wonderful to hear him hammer the abs basically nail it and i i i agree i have been arriving at that conclusion for the past year because i was like no no but it has promise and the better half was like are you sure are you just falling for the hype or does it actually have promise and i kept on arguing we had massive arguments over dinner because that's the kind of thing we talk about (laughs) and uh i have now come to the conclusion that crypto at least for now is not just pointless, but damaging and destroying the planet. Like it is putting out the greenhouse gases of Belgium for what? Gambling. That's it. Oh, it's glorified gambling. Oh, Bart, you really needed to use a better word than crypto. I thought you'd been talking about cryptography this whole time. You talk about cryptocurrency. Yeah, I'm sitting there going, "What? I, how could I have missed that? You don't believe in cryptography?" Okay, no, no, that I'm I do, going yeah. to add to the show notes the word cryptocurrency. But it's bigger than that. So the buzzword we use nowadays is crypto because it also covers uh, non-fungible tokens and the and uh, DAOs. What are they? Digitally something or other contracts. They've made a big buzzword. So the whole crypto thing now means all that crypto blockchain stuff. Unfortunately, okay. I'm still going to put a little c- clarification. <laughs> sure, yeah, sure, by all means. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's really f- the whole conversation is fun. But hearing Bruce tear the shreds out of that whole stuff, he just does it so well. It just made me smile. It was great. Yeah, anyway. And the Chainsaw, if you're a nerdy person, you may find quite a few other episodes fun. That is where the plug for the warp terminal replacement came from, too. Oh, really? Okay. Okay, great. You know, I do, uh, I have found a problem with my busted up knee. Uh, How do I listen to podcasts? I can't just sit in a chair and listen to a show. I'm not capable of doing that. I can't vacuum. Oh, I can't God. do anything. Oh, noise canceling headphones. I always listen yeah, but, to and do and do podcast. what while I'm listening. Oh, sorry. I can't just sit yeah, there. Yeah. Can't do it. Got to do something else. You can't listen while vacuuming, but no, you can't listen because you're not vacuuming. Right, right. I can't walk. I can't. I can't vacuum. I can't wash my car. I can't walk the dog. Make a jigsaw puzzle. Ah, that's a good idea. <laughs> I, I would. You know, that's. Physical work, so your brain is free to podcast, and the physical work will stop you getting distracted. 
There you go. There you go. Maybe that's the trick because I can't write and and listen to anything. So uh, no. Anyway, no. Wow. maybe in three months when my knee is better, I can get around to listening to this one. <laughs> I I really hope you're not stuck suffering that long, Alison. I hope so too. I've been down the knee route. Not a thing you want to do damage to. No, you as I told a you, lot. As I told you yesterday, one star would not recommend. <laughs> I concur completely. <laughs> Two thumbs up to that review. All right. Well, on that note, we should probably call it. We should indeed. So remember, folks, until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for tonight. And uh, do not forget to join us a week from Monday in the uh, live chat room at podfeet.com slash chat for the uh, WWDC conference. But in the meantime, did you know you can email me at allison at podfeet.com anytime you like? If you have questions or suggestions, just send it on over. You can also follow me on Twitter at PodFeet. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you know everything good starts with PodFeet.com. So you can join our Slack community at PodFeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Right now, we're having fun with 1Password8, competing on who has the best security score. I think Sandy was ahead, but I think somebody else just jumped in and might be beating her. I know it's not me. Anyway, don't forget to go to podfeet.com slash Patreon for a recurring donation or a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And don't forget to look for those referral links in your podcatcher of choice. And if you want to join the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.